Hey pals, welcome to The Query Show. It's episode eight, which means The Query Show has been going on for a full two months now, minus a holiday hiatus, which doesn't really count. So that's very thrilling. Uh, I'm excited to do a historical fantasy, historical fiction episode today. I love historical fiction. I don't really write it, but I did write a thesis on it when I was doing my MFA. So I'm slightly obsessed. And I think that it's one of those genres that has a lot of details that need to come across in a query because you have a lot of setup to do. So hopefully if you write or enjoy historical fiction or historical fantasy, this episode will be useful and interesting. And even if not, you'll probably find something to like. Our queries today come from Megan and Louisa. Thank you for sending them in. We're going to start with Megan, so let's dive in. Okay, so as always, I'm going to read the entire query, and then I'll go paragraph by paragraph to offer some thoughts, critiques, tweaks. Dear Agent, in Riddles of the Sphinx, Thebes is cursed. People die in the streets their bodies polluting the land and poisoning the water. But Ismene isn't worried. Her father has saved their kingdom once before, and she knows he will again. All he has to do is find the murderer of the former king, and the curse will be lifted. Ismene and her siblings make a game of the curse, each trying to discover who the murderer is first. But she never expected that her father himself would turn out to be the blight on the land. When her father's secret is revealed, Ismene's family falls apart. One parent is exiled, the other commits suicide, and the bond of the close-knit siblings is forever fractured. With their father gone, Ismene's brothers go to war over the rule of the land. Ismene has foreseen they will slaughter each other, and she will do anything to prevent this from happening, even if she destroys herself in the process. She uses her own curse, visions of the past, present, and future bestowed on her by the god Apollo, to try to change the course of fate to save a kingdom, end a war, and reunite her family. But the gods themselves seem to be behind the war, and Ismene is destined to be the only survivor. My YA historical fantasy Riddles of the Sphinx is complete at 58,000 words. A retelling of Sophocles' Theban plays and Stadius's Thebaid, Thebaid, man, I should know this, I was a classics major for a hot second in college. Riddles of the Sphinx will appeal to fans of Madeline Miller's Circe. My MA and BA in classics have taken me on many adventures, attending a week-long conference speaking exclusively in Latin, living with archaeologists in Rome, and delivering a paper on Greek tragedy at a conference at Oxford. Whether on the page or in the archaeologist's trench, the classics are still alive if you know where to look. Thank you for your consideration. Okay, so back to the top. Thebes is cursed. People are dying. Classic nerds unite. I really love this premise. So the opening paragraph here sets up a great problem. There's a creepy, omnipresent curse that makes people die and rot in the streets, which is yucko. And we learn what has to happen in order to solve the problem. All good. We also meet our protagonist and get a sense of her quote-unquote ordinary world, or the situation that will be upended by the inciting incident of the plot. The only things I really see missing in this first paragraph are just a little bit more context about Ismene and her father. How old is she, for one? Can the author include an adjective to hint at her personality as well? And what is her father's specific role here? I feel like he might be the current king from context and also having read some of the classics, but it's not clear. Finally, I would leave the title out here. 
Thebes is cursed by itself makes such a dramatic opening line that I kind of don't want any meta story elements slowing it down. Plus, the author will mention the title later on anyway. So now we have Ismene and her siblings making a game of the curse and her father's secret getting revealed. Intrigue. This is a great second paragraph. It really develops the premise and ups the stakes. The bedrock of the family unit is gone and Ismene is getting closer to being on her own. More people are also dying. I see the potential for condensing a bit here. The but she never expected and when her father's secret is revealed lines both basically deliver the same information, that her father's the source of the curse, so there could be a way to join those up. Furthermore, I'm curious how this secret comes out. There's a little passive voice problem there. Her father's secret is revealed. But who's responsible? In other words, who's taking the actions that are creating the plot? It seems like this revelation is the inciting incident, which means it probably happens pretty early on in the book, but I'd still like to know who is doing things at this point and what Ismene herself is doing too. Now her brothers are going to war over the rule of the land and Ismene is trying to use her visions to stop them. So this paragraph gives a lot of good pinch points. Plot is happening. We can see cause and effect in with their father gone, Ismene's brothers go to war and we see conflict. Ismene knows that disaster is awaiting but stopping it might mean dying herself. Ismene's gift is clearly important here, so I think we need to know about it earlier. Not just because it's important to the plot, though, but because it seems like it's the source of her emotional stakes and arc. A gift like this is bound to cause inner turmoil, great power, great responsibility, etc. And while the storyline is full of action, we're still missing some of the heart of Ismene's personal story. Because where does she start out emotionally, and how do the events of the plot force her to grow or change? The third paragraph is where we should see her right on that precipice between who she was and who she has to become to achieve her goal. Knowing that she's cursed from the beginning might help us understand her conflict. Finally, I don't know if the last line is working. The gods seem to be and Ismene is destined to be are both impersonal phrases. Who's relaying this information? Is it coming from one of her prophecies? We just need to know more. Now we get to the summary paragraph about the title, the word count, and the comp titles. This is great stuff, the genre category, word count, title, all there. I'm not sure if the title should be repeated here, just in the way it's phrased. You'd probably have to look at it on the page to see what I mean. It could just be a typo. I would try for at least one comp title, just because Circe is not YA, although it's gorgeous and very well known. Even if it's not in a classical setting per se, another YA historical fantasy here would help. Remember, it's all about building that Venn diagram between two titles that are similar but not exactly the same. Then we have the author's bio paragraph all about their fantastic life as a classicist and the idea that the classics are still alive if you know where to look. I mean, hell yeah. This is a great bio paragraph and it does exactly what I've talked about before, bringing in relevant biographical information and showing why you are the right author for this book. This author has the experience and educational background to make this really well-researched and intriguing. So I love that. Thanks, Megan. This sounds great. Our second query today comes from Louisa. Thank you, Louisa. Dear Agent, I noticed on Query Tracker that you were interested in obscure or strange historical fiction not taught in schools, so my novel Sword of the Prophet may interest you. 
Janneken is a shy 17-year-old girl living in Amsterdam in the 1530s. Her mother died in poverty, leaving behind a carved box containing old letters. But the trouble is, Janneken can't read and neither could her mother, much less write. Before Janneken can find someone to read the letters to her, they are partially destroyed, and only a few words remain legible, including the name Tegta and the name of a noble family. Hans, her former neighbor and a journeyman bookseller, returns home with two missing fingers and terrible scars on his face. He offers to read the letters, then escort Janneken to Germany, following the slim clues. Will they find the father Janneken's mother absolutely refused to talk about? Janneken has never left her hometown, but she is soon involved in narrow escapes as they try to outwit Peter, a government spy. Peter has been hired to spy on and report the Anabaptists, the more the better, and he's watching Hans, or so they believe. The Anabaptists are a radical offshoot group of the 16th century Reformation, detested by Catholics and Lutherans alike, and Hans is one of them. Unwittingly, Janneken is caught up in the tide. Ultimately, she must speak up for what she believes is right, or become an accomplice to cruelty as a fanatical Harlem baker enthralls the whole town with his powerful beliefs. The story is a reverse Noah's Ark with foxes taking over the chicken coop. Sword of the Prophet is a novel of 105,000 words, written in third person deep in Janneken's point of view. It has romantic elements, but is not a romance. I self-published my first book, Sword of Peace, on February 10, 2018, and this is a sequel, but it could stand alone. Sword of Peace has done well, receiving 56 reviews, averaging 4.6 stars on Amazon. I have sold hundreds of copies and had over 5,000 downloads when the book was free. I am doing book funnel giveaways to get email addresses and now have an email list of over 600 subscribers. I have been honored with an Indie Bragg Honorary Medallion Award. Regards, author. Okay, so we'll take it from the top. The author is introducing themselves to the agent based on a query tracker listing. So I, for one, love obscure or strange historical fiction not taught in schools. Who doesn't? I mean, maybe some people, but they're wrong. Now that said, as longtime listeners will know, long time for the past two months, I'm really an advocate to just diving into the plot first thing. The one exception is if you have a genuine personal connection to the agent you're querying. As in, you met them face to face, you're being referred to them, or they for some other reason specifically asked you to send a project, like they faved your pitch in an online contest. As is here, though, I think the author can skip straight to the next paragraph with the plot. And then we get to the plot, the shy 17-year-old girl, Amsterdam in the 1530s, and the box of letters. So this first paragraph starts off great. Immediately we know who our protagonist is and what problem she's facing. I particularly like this is I particularly like that this author uses a single adjective, shy, to tell us an awful lot about the main character. We know her goal, motivation, and conflict. Plus, we have the immediate setting, which is key for a historical novel, not just place, but also time. And even in this short paragraph, we have the problem compounding upon itself. She can't read the letters, and then they get partially destroyed before she can find help. A few things to revise, in my opinion. First, switch living for something a little more evocative. We have her living in Amsterdam in the 1530s. I get the sense that she's poor, so maybe something like struggling to survive or something similar that shows us what kind of life she has. It's like using that adjective shy. It just gives us a little more to go on. Secondly, indicate when the mother died. Was this recent or a long time ago? When it comes to the letters, they are partially destroyed is passive voice. 
We don't know who or what destroyed the letters, so make that clear. It's very important. Finally, it doesn't quite make sense to me that we get the specific name Tegtep, but only the name of a noble family. Why not just mention both names specifically? And for that matter, if Janikin can't read them, then how does the reader know what they say? Is that uncovered in the plot at this point? So in the next paragraph, we meet Hans, her former neighbor and bookseller, who's going to escort her to Germany. The plot thickens, and we get a new goal. Find Janikin's father. However, if this is her main goal, it kind of undercuts the tension of the previous goal of reading the letters. We know she's able to read them now with Hans's help. So learning about that goal to read the letters in the previous paragraph almost feels like a misdirection of our attention. Secondly, this paragraph needs some more cause and effect language. I'd suggest just joining up what's already there, revising to something more like, after Hans returns home, etc., Janikin decodes the letter's meanings with his help, only to discover that she might have a father still living. But the clues are slim, and Janikin can either follow Hans to Germany or live in doubt forever. This also avoids the rhetorical question that ends the paragraph as written. Rhetorical questions, as I've said on previous episodes, are generally a query letter no-no. A rhetorical question turns the focus to the reader's opinion, what they think is going to happen, and it doesn't stay trained on the character's actions within the story. Finally, I'm just curious where Hans is coming back from, because he's returning to town after a while. So that's another detail that could get added. Now we have them leaving the hometown and introducing Peter, the government spy, after the Anabaptists. So this paragraph has some nice detail. I like knowing that Janikin has never left her hometown. It adds to the emotional stakes. But this paragraph could use some streamlining. First, we have the passive voice creeping in again. She is soon involved in narrow escapes, doesn't tell anything about what Janikin herself, or any of the other characters for that matter, is doing. Is she initiating the escape or just going along with someone? And if so, who is it? Next, a lot of these sentences could also get joined up like in the previous paragraph. Rather than repeat words and terms like spy and Anabaptist, the author could try to write a longer sentence, such as dot dot dot, as they try to outwit Peter, a government spy hired to report on the Anabaptists, the radical offshoot group of the 16th century Reformation detested by Catholics and Lutherans alike, and Hans is one of them. Rearranging like this helps the information feel related, and not just dropped in one thing after another. Cause and effect doesn't necessarily have to involve action, per se. It just has to show that there are relationships between the facts of the story, world, and characters. That there is potential for an act by one to affect the others. Now we come to Janikin caught up in the tide, deciding whether or not to speak up or become an accomplice to cruelty, with the fanatical Harlem Baker. This paragraph has that sneaky passive voice again. Again, I'd suggest this author just make sure that Janikin stays active as the protagonist, even though she's at the mercy of greater forces. So we do end with the character at a crossroads here with a choice to make, which is fantastic. I love rounding off a query that way. However, there is some information missing. What does it mean to be caught up in the tide and become an accomplice to cruelty? A tide of what? What kind of cruelty? What does Janikin believe is right? Has she become an Anabaptist? And what role does the baker have in all this? Generally, the third paragraph shouldn't introduce any new characters or information. It can feel too convenient or diabolicus ex machina to have problems thrown in at the last minute. On the flip side, there are some threads dropped here, too. What role does Hans have in any of this? 
And what is happening with Janikin's ultimate goal to find her father? Or is that not her goal anymore? Again, the third paragraph needs to tighten the screws on what's already been presented, not add in new elements as surprise twists. So these characters, Hans and Janikin's father, should come back here. Then there's my favorite, emotional stakes. I don't feel like I have a good sense of Janikin's emotional arc. If she's joining this new, borderline heretical religion, what does that mean to her personally? Does it give her the sense of belonging she's never had as an orphan? Or something else? No matter what it is, it's these personal emotional ties to the conflict that are so important to include. The author started off with a deeply personal goal, to learn more about her dead mother. That same emotional intimacy needs to come through at the end for the reader to really care and for things to come full circle. Finally, I'm not sure I understand the Noah's Ark reference here. It's kind of mixing metaphors in a way that just doesn't make sense to me, so I'd suggest the author just leave it off. Now we have the summary with the word count and the title. It's a pretty good summary. I might include historical fiction before novel, just to be totally clear, so a historical fiction novel of 105,000 words. And when it comes to the romantic elements but is not a romance, I had no idea based on the plot summary that there was any romance in this story. You can't tell a reader something like that at the last minute. You should mention it. Even if it's just a B-plot, a romance should be mentioned in the plot summary. This is a place in querying where show-don't-tell still applies. You want to show the romantic elements in the plot summary, not tack it on when you're describing what the book is like. Next, we get some context about the previous book in this author's series and its success as a self-published title. So traditional publishers aren't totally closed off to works from authors who have previously self-published. It's not like a stamp of disapproval. But in a query letter, it's smart to keep those two sides of your career distinct. So in this case, I'd call the book a companion, not a sequel, since the author says it could stand alone. A sequel to a self-published book might be a red flag. As for the sales numbers and reads, I would leave it to just the reviews and star rating, if that. Unless your sales numbers are like astronomically good and we're talking hundreds of thousands of copies, mentioning them is probably only going to hurt you. Similarly, I don't think the author ought to mention their marketing efforts per se, since that's really only relevant to a self-published author doing their own promotion. In a query letter, the agent's just more interested in the story, not necessarily the size of your platform. That award, though, is fantastic, so definitely mention that. Also, in particular for historical fiction, I think a little blurb about how the author conducted the research is always welcome. Did you read up a ton, take a trip, go to the archive library? Definitely mention it. The first author on the show did a great job of talking about all their classics background, and I'm sure this author could do something similar because clearly they have a great understanding of the time period. And this is especially true if you're querying an agent really interested in those kinds of books. You'll just come off more impressive in their eyes if you list all the things you did to make your book accurate. Thanks so much, Louisa. And that, my dear pals, is the show for this week. Thank you for listening, and thank you to Megan and Louisa for being very brave and sending in their queries. If you, too, would like to be on The Query Show, it's very easy. Just go to thequeryshow.com and fill out the submission form. I'm looking for queries in all different genres. I like to pair them up and keep them thematically joined. So no matter what genre or age category you write for, send it in. 
So a couple upcoming cool things on the Patreon. First, I just recorded a great episode with Emily S. Keys from Fuse Literary. She is a delightful agent. We tried to keep it focused, but we were having a lot of fun. So I think that means it's going to be fun to listen to. So patrons will get to listen to that very soon. But also, there's always downloadable copies of the critiques to check out, which I think are really helpful to study along. Plus, we have great discussions going on about the nature of writing queries, at what point in the writing process you start to write a query, which I think is really interesting for authors who are drafting, and also just general commiseration as people go into the trenches. And since we're coming up on the 10th episode, crazily enough, I'm working on a special class about the first 10 pages of your book for the patrons. It's sort of like 10, 10, I don't know, it's thematic. But anyway, it'll be a video class that you can watch all about the first 10 pages of your manuscript. So if you're curious about hooking beyond just the query and learning how to make those sample pages really great, I got you, fam. As always, the backlog of our episodes is on the website, thequeryshow.com, and you can sign up for the mailing list there and get a query workbook. Plus, check us out on iTunes and Stitcher and Google Play and like a zillion other places I uploaded it to, basically everywhere on the internet. Anyway, it's freezing cold in my office, so I'm going to sign off. But until next time, I remain your host, Blair Thornburg. Peace out. Peace out.